Welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. I'm Larry Lennon-Schmidt, your host, and today I'm, I'm, I'm very honored and privileged to have Walter Bradley with me. Uh, if you've just tuned in, Walter has been a professor at A&M and at Baylor. Uh, he's pretty excited about what's happened to Baylor's football season this year, and, uh, and also pretty excited to talk about apologetics and faith and science and, and how we think as Christians. So welcome again, Walter. It's glad to have you. Thanks, glad Larry. to have you here. So we were we were talking a bit, Walter, about uh, the the myth of conflict between faith and science, and particularly a couple of authors who have uh, particularly a book called A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology, and uh, I wonder if we might go back to that and, and think a little bit more about what his what his points were, how he came to create this in in effect uh, story, if you will, and and how we think about that today. Yeah, I think that, uh, again, as, as you had previously noted, Andrew Dixon White in 1896 wrote this famous book, which is still often quoted today, not because mm-hmm. of its historical uh, precision uh, and authenticity, but because it simply uh, parrots the kind of things that people who quote it want to pretend or to assume uh, represent real history. Uh, let me give you some reasons why one should be skeptical of White's claims. First of all, White was not a professional historian, and he didn't do this uh, book with the normal uh, care uh, and tools that a professional historian would do. Uh, White set out to prove what he already believed. So he started with a conclusion, and then he simply went shopping, (laughs) if I can use that term. He went shopping, uh, went looking for uh, any little shreds of evidence that would support his hypothesis, and of course, completely dismissing uh, any evidence to the contrary. So this isn't what good scholarship looks like. You take all the evidence and then you create the story. You don't create the story and then cherry pick the evidence (laughs) to fit the story that you've created, okay? There's only one significant example in the history of the church uh, of it persecuting scientists uh, for uh, his scientific work, and that was Galileo. There were a couple of other uh, examples maybe uh, in the early days, but it was not widespread, and mm-hmm. it was, uh, for reasons sometimes more complicated than just their sciences, I think you've already noted uh, in our discussion before the program. Yes. Galileo had some problems with uh, saying things that the Pope didn't like. Yes. And so his problems were partly political. They mm-hmm. weren't all mm-hmm. uh, scientific. And I think in some of the other cases where people were, who were scientists who were accused of being heretics, wasn't necessarily because of their science. It was partly just because of their heretical claims about other things. Other areas as yeah, well. They, they got uh-huh. them into trouble. But I think there aren't lots of good examples. Uh, furthermore, why distorted uh, much history to try to make his case. And uh, a book by Lindbergh and Numbers published in 1987 goes through in details many, many examples of where uh, White took things that actually happened and completely rewrote the history. Sure. Twisted and the facts to make the story that he wanted to make, uh, not to let the data speak for itself sure. and, and tell its own story. And, and Lindbergh and Numbers, by the way, are not, are not Christians. Right. They're probably more in the agnostic uh, realm, but they're not as unfriendly as some of the militant atheists. Sure. Ron Numbers, in fact, is probably the most recognized uh, historian of science in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and comes from a background in which uh, he had some early uh, upbringing in Christianity in his home, but mm-hmm. uh, re- rejected that for whatever reasons. And 
later became a famous historian of science, but one who's not hostile mm-hmm. to religious beliefs. He just doesn't happen to embrace it himself. So he just pursues truth. So he's, he's more objective than, than, he's, than— He's very objective, so yeah. he's not writing to try to support religious beliefs, mm-hmm. but he's also not out to try to uh, do a hatchet job gotcha. yeah. on that. Sure. Uh, it's interesting what some other modern scholars have had to say by way of assessment of this so f- uh, so-called conflict hypothesis, uh, which people like Dawkins and others are often quoting, mm-hmm. uh, but they're quoting sources like White. Mm-hmm. who really haven't done real history. They've just uh, written some nice uh, uh, fictional narrative. Okay? <laughs> we, might, we might call it science fiction okay? Okay. <laughs> uh, to support their case. Yeah. And so let me share with you just some, some recent examples. Uh, the warfare hypothesis has been exposed as rubbish by studies of the highly rational scholastic thought of the Middle Ages by Edward Grant and Alexander Murray. So they're saying if you go back to the Middle Ages, it's quite clear that the church was the main sponsor of scientific investigations. Mm-hmm. Uh, Galileo is being sponsored uh, yeah, by it's, the Catholic Church. It's really fascinating that the church was sponsoring scientific inquiry as well as the greatest art that was commissioned yeah. in. Yeah, they really felt like that understanding more of God's creation was part of their overall mission and yeah. uh, more power to them. Uh, a fellow named Brooke from England in 1991 uh, one of the best-known best uh, of uh, history of science uh, scholars in England, writes, in its traditional forms, the conflict thesis has been largely discredited. And he's a leading, again, historian of science in England. Uh, again, Ron Numbers, in a later book, the one that I quoted from a minute ago, this is 2000, says, despite a developing consensus among scholars that science and Christianity have not been at war, the notion of conflicts has refused to die. Okay, so it refused to die not for uh, uh, support by alternative evidence. It refused to die because it was ideologically useful. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, 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 a quote from uh, uh, Professor Shapin, S-H-A-P-I-N, at the University of California, San Diego. He says, it's been a long time since the view of the warfare between science and religion has been held by historians of science. So a wide cross-section of historians of science basically have dismissed this as simply being false. Mm-hmm. And people who try to propagate this idea that uh, uh, faith in science or Christianity and science are natural uh, adversaries uh, and, and must be hostile to each other is really a created myth, uh, not sub- substantiated uh, by the evidence itself. Uh, I like what Numbers and Lindbergh said in their 1987 book when they said, uh, uh, it was not a matter of Christianity waging war on science. All of the participants called themselves Christians and all acknowledged biblical authority. And, and just a short list of some of the many famous early scientists, uh, uh, Robert Boyle uh, of Boyle's gas laws, PV equals NRT. If you've ever taken a chemistry course, you've seen that before. Sure. He, was a, he was a very, very devout Christian. Uh, he also was the founder of the uh, Royal Society uh, in uh, England. Uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, probably the most, one of the most famous French physicists in history. If you've ever studied mechanics, you know the unit Pascal, newtons per square meter. It's named for him. He was the one that basically... Uh, uh, discovered that. Isaac Newton, of course, everybody knows uh, 
uh, his uh, discovery of gravity and uh, uh, the laws of motion uh, as well. Yeah, uh, Newton, Newton I, I just love these, some of these quotes from these old scientists. Uh, Newton said, the solar system itself could not have been produced by blind, blind chance are fortuitous causes, but only by a cause very well skilled in mechanics and geometry. Yes, I so. love that. Well, in, in his book, Principia, at the end of the book, when he sort of addresses the question, now, why is it that mass attracts mass? Okay? Because mm-hmm. it's one of the cardinal claims of the book. And he says, why, why, why is it that mass attracts mass? Why does the, is the earth attracted to the sun and held with an invisible uh, rope, right. so to speak? as it goes round and doesn't spin off into space. And he says, I can find no uh, better explanation for this than that which is given in Colossians 1.17. <laughs> now, if you go look at Colossians 1.17, you will find out that it basically says uh, that it's through the power of Christ that all things hold together. Excellent. So that would also apply to Coulomb's law, right? Oh, why sure. Do, why do charges attract each other? Why does mass attract? Well, these are all forces of nature, which I think represent uh, uh, God's customary way of caring for his creation. Well, the first thing I thought of was me being attracted to Mexican food uh, when you thought about my <laughs> mass being attracted to mass. So I'm glad we've got a, <laughs> something broader than that. <laughs> no, I agree. Uh, but it's exciting as you look back at the history of the development of science. And if we look at the many amazing discoveries of the 20th century, that there is a convergence, I think, of scientific understanding that absolutely is becoming very, very uh, supportive of the idea that the universe didn't just happen. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that make that completely implausible that uh, uh, today you have to say that that there has to be some bigger explanation for that. And I think that uh, quite uh, surprisingly for some people and even some Christians, the more we've learned in science, the more I think it's made belief in uh, uh, biblical Christianity uh, increasingly plausible. The Bible doesn't need science to prove it's the Word of God. But I think we would expect that God being the, cre- the creator of nature as well, that they would be uh, confirming sure. in, in their consistency and so forth. And so I, I find as a person who's worked in science for 45 years— that uh, uh, the fact that there is this convergence mm-hmm. is, to me, what one would ultimately expect as we understand more of the scriptures and our interpretations of that uh, uh, probably over time get better as we understand more of the details and maybe uh, some new hermeneutical principles and our understanding of science gets better than one would expect properly understood. These have the same author. Yes. So they have to have... They have to tell the same story. There would be congruence. They have to be congruence, exactly. Well, and and, uh, Guillermo Gonzalez a few years ago wrote his book about the complexities of Earth, and and then there was a book by secular scientists, I I can't recall their name now, called The Rare Earth, Mm -hmm. and it developed the same kind of hypothesis, that there's a tremendous number of things that have to be just so for us to be on a planet that produces and supports life like we know it. Uh, so I think there's a there's a broad recognition outside of Christianity of the complexity. It's just how do you, how do you explain it? Yeah, that it pure chance or a guided hand? Yeah, Rare Earth is is a book I would highly recommend. It was written in about 2000, and the two fellows who are professors at University of Washington, um, 
are themselves, by their own indication, uh, uh, atheists or agnostics. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet they found that combining, it wasn't just their work, all of the work that had been done uh, in the last half century that indicated the many things that have to be just so for mm-hmm. uh, the, there to be a place, in, well, first of all, there to be a place in the universe where complex conscious life could develop. Okay, or to uh, exist, is uh, extraordinarily improbable. If you look in our own galaxy, uh, or not in our own galaxy, but in our own uh, uh, part of the universe, our sun and the mm-hmm. associated stars and uh, moons and so forth, uh, there's no place except Earth that comes close. We've been recently looking at Mars and trying to say, does it have even a little water? Might it have had water in the past? Uh, do we find evidence for organic molecules? Uh, at this point, it's a, it's, it seems extraordinarily improbable that life could have developed there. But when we look around, there just aren't many good choices. Yeah, and the Earth is ideal in so many, many different ways. Mm-hmm. And their whole book is the story mm-hmm. of how many different things about Earth are essential and yet highly improbable. And not written from a theistic perspective. Oh, heavens no. These yeah. guys, in fact, they... They have some interesting comments that I use in some of my presentations that say it is unlikely that a Earth-like planet could have existed anyplace else in the universe mm-hmm. because the requirements for it to happen are each individually so improbable that the sort of cumulative improbability sure. makes it uh, a remarkable accident. They don't say miracle. Yes. That Earth has these characteristics, and therefore we have a place where we can have mm-hmm. uh, is a suitable home. Walter, it seems that, that there are a lot of scientists who, who believe. We've, we've talked a little bit about the Pew Research <coughs> Center's data, mm. Elaine Eklund's book called uh, Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think. And it, and it seems that uh, oh, from, from the Pew data, over half of scientists believe in some form of deity or higher power. 33% of scientists say they believe in God. Uh, 18% believe in a universal spirit or higher power. Uh, about four in ten scientists do not believe in God, uh, so there's a there's a slightly higher percentage of scientists who don't believe. But to say that all scientists don't believe uh, would would be an exaggeration, wouldn't it? Yeah, and her book does something that's quite interesting. She basically shows that the percentage of uh, people who are scientists who go to church once a week has remained essentially mm-hmm. unchanged mm-hmm. for the last hundred years. Sure. And as she interviewed, she didn't just do surveys, as she interviewed scientists, she concluded that there are many scientists whose reasons for not believing have nothing to do with science. Uh-huh. They have to do with maybe praying for a sick mother who died, sure. uh, of being treated badly yeah. by people who are religious people, so forth and so on. And so even amongst those who don't believe, their reasons for not believing are, are much wider ranging and more complex than, oh, they're scientists, sure. and they find some fundamental conflict. There are very few people like that. And your point about doctors, thats would you bring that up again? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's often interesting that at a lot of universities, it seems like the biology faculty are much less uh, religious than the other departments. And at the three <laughs> universities I've been in, that would be true. Uh, but what's interesting is if you look at the percentage of doctors that are believers, uh, it turns out it's extraordinarily high. It's like 80%. And so— her assumption or her hypothesis is 
that what happens to the pool is we get to a certain fork in the road and the people the, the people who are choosing a path in life science mm-hmm. uh, who are Christians uh, sort of are biased toward choosing a medical career where they can actually be hands-on helping people. Maybe as opposed to research. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that uh, that leaves the pool uh, of people who go into academics mm-hmm. uh, quite diluted mm-hmm. of people who are Christians. And so it depends on where you look when you say, well, sure. people who are in life science are less likely to believe. Well, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> if you look in the medical profession, it's an extraordinarily high percentage. And so I think there are more to some of these stories than people uh, realize. Well, let's keep, let's keep examining the story. That's part of what we're, we're encouraging everyone to do at the Hill Country Institute. And through this program, Hill Country Institute Live, we hope you'll be back with us on a regular basis. Please visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org. We invite you to consider a, a tax-deductible donation to help continue to support this program and our other work. We also have a lot of web resources, really interesting talks by people like Andy Crouch and Walter Kaiser and and, and this Walter as well. And so uh, yes. please join us there. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing, hearing your calls and interacting with you soon. Bless you.